I'm not sure where to even begin. It's not over. Or, it is over, but I just haven't told the story correctly. I need to try again. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to move on? Stubborn, stubborn, stubborn card. I'll tell you right away. You know, anyway. You know, because it's in the description of this episode. However you are accessing it, I'm certain you've seen it, and I'm certain you know, and so I will not delay the inevitable. I have not left the land on which my terrible tower stood. Last week you and I saw it crumble to the ground together. But then, once I stopped talking to you, you disappeared, you see, and I was alone. I've been alone here, because, though the tower was gone, something did not feel quite right, or perhaps it felt a little too right. The moon shone too brightly. The birds sang too sweetly. The breeze blew too warmly. Everything is good. I don't know what to do with that. So I stayed. I stayed for a day only before I decided to turn my questions outward rather than inward, since inward is often murky and unquiet and unclear. I shuffled my deck of cards. I promise, I promise, I promise to you that I shuffled. I shuffled thoroughly. If I hadn't, why else would I be stalling as I am? I shuffled so thoroughly. I cut the deck. I drew the card on top. It was the Ace of Cups again. Upright at least, but still present once more. Disbelief washed over me, and worse than that, disappointment. I should not be disappointed to see such a positive, inspirational, well-meaning card again. Inspiration, divine inspiration, divine love, the fulfillment of dreams and desires, creativity, joy, compassion. You heard me discuss this card last week. It is a wonderful card, I know, and yet I was disappointed that I would have to tell you another story about it. This is eleven episodes in, and we've drawn this card four times. Four times. I must be honest with you, my friends. My life revolves around telling you stories. I cannot pretend that it doesn't. And so I wanted nothing other than to tell you a thrilling, unique story. Then, this card again. I must take a deep breath and remember that this is a blessing. This is good. This is good. This is good. There are a number of things that could be going on here. 
First, I drew the Ace of Cups reversed, twice, so perhaps I need to draw it upright twice in order to even the balance. Second, I haven't told you a story about the upright Ace of Cups yet, not a proper story with characters other than myself. Third, the number that coincides with this card is four. Oddly enough, Perhaps this will be the fourth and last time we'll come across it. But we mustn't limit ourselves or the cards. We must simply see how they are dealt each week, as it were. And we mustn't be ungrateful. I am trying to accept peace. I am trying to be comfortable with joy. I am trying and... I believe I am succeeding, but it is drawing my attention to those dark parts of my soul that cling to despair and longing with a voracious, insatiable hunger. Good. Draw attention to them so that I may banish them with light. As I thought that, there was indeed a light before me, a bright, warm glow. There he was. He followed me here. He who brings fire. He stared at the place where the tower used to be. Tall and broad and burning and pain itself. He did not move for some time. I was a little afraid he might be angry with the fact that it was gone. I don't know why. Perhaps because, in a past where I was a rebellious monster made of shadow, he was a fallen angel, a self-proclaimed god of death. No longer. Now, he simply burns. And he has been trying very hard not to burn anyone else. He has been nothing but comfort and company to me. Before, if he is who I think he was, he delighted in enchanting and ensorceling me, confusing me, deserting me. Now he is, well, he is feeling, and he is longing now. He is burning. The tower was once his prison, too. Now what would he have? He stared and he stood, and I waited, and he took a big, deep breath. With that breath, he and his fire both together expanded and grew into a great blaze. As he exhaled, he calmed himself once more to a pleasing, steady flame. He looked at me and he asked me which card I drew. It is the first time he spoke to me above a whisper, at least in this form. I stared at the Ace of Cups. I told him. And when he smiled, it was wide and full of joy that was both in his glowing mouth and in his black and yellow eyes. And I swear, I think I heard him chuckle a little bit, too. 
He sat down across from me without saying another word, and he looked first at the card, and then back up to me, cross-legged and patient, like a child at story time. He simply watched until I was ready. I didn't need a prompt. I need to tell a story about the Ace of Cups. Not a story about me, or you, or him. A story for me, and you, and him. I once met a distinguished gentleman who lived in a large, glorious castle on a lonely hill. I will not bore you immediately with the facts about how I met him. In fact, I don't know if I really remember how or when I did. I'm certain that I did. But perhaps those details will come to me at the end of my tale. His castle was very large, very old, and very fine, and it had been in his family for generation after generation. My story takes place long, long ago, but even then, the castle was considered to be ancient and mysterious. Even in an ancient and mysterious time, the man and his home were even more so. Now, before I tell you more about the man himself, let me tell you about the people who lived in the town in the valley below. They were superstitious and easily frightened, especially lately as it was a period of great unrest. First, a drought leading up to the harvest, resulting in a very poor crop yield for the people. This led to a recession and even further scarcity, which resulted in rampant illness and unhappiness throughout the land. The entire place was desperate, frightened, sad, and angry. Now the man who lived in the castle on the hill that overlooked this place had been there for so long. Before that, his father had lived there. Before that, his father's father, and before him, his father's father's father, and so on. But there was never anyone else. Always some patriarch who bore an uncanny resemblance to the man who lived there before him. Never anyone else. No mother, no child. Only just one grown man living in the castle. One man after the other, after the other. It was not a great ruse, but he was not particularly skilled in deception. In fact, it was hardly a ruse at all. He barely hid what he was. He wanted to be known, as we all do, I think. He tried. He tried to offer what he could but his great wealth and his countless treasures were of little use in this place that was so isolated from the rest of the world. He had great stores of clothes, fabrics, and furs that he donated to the town, 
to keep its people warm in the growing cold. He opened his gates so that the townspeople could chop down his trees for firewood and hunt the game on his land. But the trees and the game were growing scarce, too. All that he had was only worth money, and money could barely help when what the people truly needed was food and safety and joy. Now it was known that he never descended into the town to see the people. They never came up the hill to his castle to see him. They left each other alone, he because he didn't want to frighten them, and they because they were indeed frightened of him. There were rumors that were more than rumors. Rumors of the obviously true fact that the man never aged, and in fact his father, his father's father, and his father's father's father had never actually lived in that castle. It was him, and had only been him for centuries. No surprise. And in this part of the world, these people knew only of one kind of creature that could live for so long without dying. Why didn't he need to descend into town in order to buy food? Why didn't he have anyone bring food up to him? For someone so wealthy, he seemed to be able to live in his castle without any aid from servants or workers from town. He did not need anything from them. The whispers spoke the word vampire, and these whispers were followed by a frightened benediction, a self-blessing to ward against the evils of such a monster. But what were these evils? No one died unnaturally or suspiciously. No one had ever been found with their throat torn out or their blood drained. There wasn't even so much as the trace of a vampire bat flying across the sky at night. This is why they let him be. No matter how dark the truth of the stranger in the castle on the hill was, he left them in peace. So they offered the same courtesy back to him. Now, where does the Ace of Cups come in? Inspiration, creativity, new beginnings. The nobleman in the castle had an idea. A fantastic idea, a wonderful idea. An idea that made his immortal, preternatural heart start to beat again. A party. A party for everyone in the entire town. Something to lift the spirits and warm the bones. It was time, after all, that he introduce himself to everyone. Was it not? Now I must admit that I will need your help with this, my friends. I don't remember how the story ends. I'm sorry, I need to stop for a moment and take a quick breath. One, one, one. Everywhere, that number, over and over. One, one, one. One, four times with this ace. One man in one castle, in one town. Many people in the town, but one person whose will was so strong that everyone around him could not help but eventually bend to it. Is that how the story must go? 
And if his will was so strong that it must make itself manifest no matter what, as the Ace of Cups would have us believe the ending of the story must be, then what did he do? Was he vengeful, my friends? Vengeful at the loneliness that was so cruelly thrust upon him for century after century? Was he repentant for all that he had and all that they did not have? Was he proud that he was exempt from the pain and strife below his exquisite palace? Or rather, was he ashamed? No, that is all wrong. For when you live so long and see so much, you learn that how you feel is nowhere near as important as what you do. How you feel is important, certainly. I feel confused and frightened at the fact that I cannot seem to draw a different card. But what you do is a greater test of character. So, can I serve my higher purpose and take a blessing when I see it, even in the form of a strange little card, and tell you a story? That is my purpose. That is what I am. That is who I am. That is not all I am, but it is most of what I am. If I cannot do this simple thing... No. It is good. I deserve to drink from the Ace of Cups. One breath in, one breath out. One... One, one, one. Just as it is growing dark here, here at the site where my ancient tower once was, the night has fallen and I suddenly feel as if I have the world at my fingertips again. And, just as I began to grow a little colder, my companion came a little closer, and I was warm once again. And you, my friend? Are you still with me? Good. We can do this. Inspiration, creativity, new beginnings. Word spread quickly that the nobleman in the castle on the hill was to throw a great party though only the time and place was made known. The townsfolk whispered among each other that he was to provide a great feast. And this brought mixed reactions. Most were furious at the fact that he was able to hoard so much food, and that he would throw it away on something as frivolous as a party. Others did not believe that he had any food to share, and believed instead that it was a trick. Everyone was left to their own decision about whether or not they would attend this strange ball, this party, whatever it was. And everyone decided against making the journey up the hill to the castle. Except for one, a young person, a new adult, though recently orphaned much to her great sorrow. She had worked her whole life in her parents' flower shop, but there were no more flowers anymore. 
and even if there were, there was no one who would be able to buy them in town. She was silent when the townsfolk debated in the streets about the strange party up the hill. She remained observant when they discussed the kind of monster the nobleman was. She was clever. She was careful. But, most importantly, she was hopeful. Hopeful that whatever was up in that dreadful-looking castle could only be better than what was down here in this desolate place. And so, on the night of the party, she made her way up the hill. Now she didn't have much, but she was able to fashion a presentable enough suit from an old dress of her mother's, and she was able to decorate herself with the dried flowers she'd preserved from the old flower shop in such a way that could perhaps distract from the fact that she owned no jewels, no pocket watch, no silk scarves, nothing. Handsome and unafraid, she marched up the cobblestone road. She was not unprepared. She had hidden a wooden stake in the inside of her coat, just in case. She planted little garlic flowers among the other flowers she decorated herself with. She was ready. The gate was black and ornately sculpted, and opened of its own accord. The hedges were overgrown with roses and thorns. As she grew closer to the front doors, she heard the distinct sound of strange, echoing music, unlike any music she'd ever heard before. And it had been so, so long since she'd heard music at all. The heavy iron doors opened, and she entered. The hallway was empty, black marble on the floor that shone so clearly she could see her face looking down at herself in it, garlic flowers in her hair and all. It was mostly dark and it was quite, quite cold. But from the same direction she heard the music, she saw a stream of vivid yellow lamplight across the floor. She followed it. She followed it to another hall, to what she thought was perhaps the ballroom, if this castle had such a place. The chandelier was lit, the fire in the hearth roared, and torches blazed on each wall plentifully. Against the wall was a single table, long and narrow, and on that table was poured dozens, perhaps even a hundred glasses of red wine. There was no food. The music played on, and when she turned her gaze to find its source, she saw, sitting at a gloriously gilded harpsichord, a man. He was, it seemed, ageless. His hair was shockingly white and strikingly long and smooth and shining. But his face was free of any lines or spots. His face was strong and proud, and carried in it what only years and years and years of life could bring. His robes were a dark, dark blue. His feet were wrapped in golden slippers. His fingers played the harpsichord beautifully, 
unimpeded by the extra knuckle that made his fingers exceedingly long and terrifying. When he looked up at her, she saw that his eyes were red. So, it was all true, she thought, as she clutched the place in her coat where the wooden stake was concealed. He smiled broadly, his fangs gleaming. You came, he said, his voice reverberating throughout the hall in such a way that made her somehow even more warm than the fire did. She looked around. Where is the banquet? she asked. He stood and approached her, his long fingers gracefully steepled before him. I never said banquet, he said, and gestured towards the room. I only said party. I have no more food than you have. He grinned widely still, his tongue gliding across one of his pointed canines. I have no need of it, you see. She arched her brow growing angry and afraid, but trying to suppress it. Here she was, with the mythic monster that had haunted her town for centuries. And she was furious. Not because he had obviously intended to kill her, she assumed. Not because he had intended to do it to whoever else would have come to his little fete, again, she assumed. But because he had no food. She turned to leave. Wait, he said, his voice suddenly quite plaintive and strange. She stopped, but did not turn. I can give you a drink. She turned and saw that he had taken a wine glass from the table and held it in his hands towards her. She tilted her head and narrowed her eyes. She didn't trust him, not one jot. He shrugged, and he drank the contents of the glass. I have much to offer, though it may not be what you thought you wanted. He began. I have a huge castle with firewood to spare, to keep warm in the winter. I have so many books that it took me many, many lifetimes to read them all. But I read them all, and now I can share them. I have music. I have warmth. I have company. I have joy. I require nothing in return but warmth, company, and joy. He picked up another glass, and he shrugged and sipped at that one too, and murmured a quick, waste not, as he did so. If you drink from my cup, you will want for nothing, not even food. Now her brow was arched in skepticism and confusion as she looked at the glass. What is it? He stared down into the red drink, and back at her. 
it is mine. And he drank the rest of its contents, too. Yours? she asked, unsure of what he meant. If you drink, you will not only never want for food again, you will never want food again. You will have no need of it, just as I don't. What will I want instead? she asked him. He grinned. More of this? He picked up another glass and went to her with it. But luckily I have plenty to spare. She looked at the rows and rows of wine glasses, and she looked at how drained his skin was, how completely death-like his complexion. It's all yours, she said, realizing the truth. Blood, his blood, copious, copious amounts of it somehow. Her eyes widened in horror. Nothing is free. Nothing is free, she said, shaking her head. When will you want to take back what you've given? He went to her, and though his speech was tired and sad and a little jaded, his eyes had hope and strength behind them. He moved quickly, his manner apologetic. You mustn't misunderstand me, he began suddenly a little desperate himself. I need nothing. I hunger for nothing. Though I am as strong as stone, I am as steadfast as the mountain. He bowed his head and presented the glass to her. If you drink, and if you join me, I will ask for nothing in return. And I will give everything that I have, forever. She took the drink in her hands, and her hands were shaking. Why? He looked up at her and grinned again, the wide, open grin of an old wolf. Because after so many years and so many lifetimes, I have come to realize that the only thing I want now is to be known for who and what I am. The night passed, and what they discussed in that castle was a mystery to anyone other than them, for no one else from town came to the party. The girl was not seen in town ever again after that. But when a hundred years had passed, and another young, curious soul came to the castle, armed with a stake and garlic flowers, prepared to take the riches that the monster up the hill was surely hoarding. He found two resplendent and frightening creatures with red eyes and long fingers and glorious robes, smiling and pleased as anything to see him. Eager to be known, they offered him a glass. 
The gate was open for whoever might want to come and take the strange riches that the strange creatures in the strange castle had to offer. But if no one else came after that, it was of little consequence. They were confident in the gift they had to give. Even if others thought they had nothing, they were confident in their own goodness, even if no one else saw them as good. And they were confident in who they were, and simply grateful to have who they were be seen and known by another, even if it was only one person. One can make all the difference, you see. I did it. It was hard this time, but I have told you the story. I want to wonder if I've appeased the Ace of Cups, but it doesn't matter. I have appeased myself, and it seems the warm stranger who walks beside me as we head home, back home, to our secret and sacred forest. Back home, walking under a canopy of bright white stars. Back home, where if you so choose, you can come and find me. For I, too, long to be known for who and what I am. But even if I am not, even if no one ever knew me and I was alone in an empty castle all to myself, I would still be whole. I would still be one. It's time to go now. I'm tired, but I am grateful to you for listening to me and staying with me, even when I was unsure and confused. I am still me, strong as stone and steadfast as the mountain. And so, until next week, good night, my friends. Be well. friends, and thank you so much for listening to episode 111 of On a Dark, Cold Night. This is Kristen Zaza, your host, writer, narrator, composer, and production team of one. I hope that you're doing well this week. Before I jump into my usual thank yous and housekeeping stuff, I want to take a moment to talk to you about a very funny and very cool podcast called Ghosted with Roz Dresfelez. I think you know me as overall a pretty serious person, and while it's true that I love ghosts, obviously, and uh, I love ghost stories, I also very much love comedy as well as the art of drag. So, imagine my excitement to learn that drag comedian Roz Dresfelez is getting spooky on Starburns Audio. Light some sage and pop your popcorn, because on Ghosted, Roz explores her curiosity of things that go bump in the night with celebrity guests, psychics, and everyday people. 
Roz Dresfelez is a drag queen comedian, host, writer, and male actress known as the Bargain Bin Beauty. She loves to ask her friends to tell her a ghost story, and her guests have talked about shadowy figures visiting them at night, hearing door slams, creepy voices, and personal ghost hunting tales. Check out stories from Sam Pancake, Deborah Wilson, Celine Luna, and many more. Roz will also share her many personal experiences with the spirits, play fun games such as EVPs or EV please, and read stories from listeners. Don't be scared. Subscribe now and don't miss a single episode on Himalaya, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, friend. Now let's move on to some friends of the show I need to thank. First, a big thank you to two folks who supported the show through coffee. Thank you so much, Nora and James. Your contribution really means the world to me. If you want to make a one-time donation to the show like Nora and James, head on over to coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash darkcoldnight. Another great way to help is to become a monthly patron on Patreon, where for any monthly pledge amount, you can receive access to my ever-growing soundtrack for the show. Find me there at patreon.com slash darkcoldnight. You can also support the show by buying a t-shirt or a hoodie at bonfire.com slash on-a-dark-cold-night. I'd like to send another thank you to Stitcher user CJKXO2, who left us a five-star review on our Stitcher page. Thank you so, so much. If you're enjoying the show, leaving a review like CJKXO2 would be such a huge help. You can do so via Stitcher, iTunes, our Facebook page, or wherever else you like. Also, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at A Dark Cold Night, Instagram at Dark Cold Night Podcast, and on Facebook and YouTube, both under On A Dark Cold Night. Thank you so much for listening with me tonight, my friends. Stay well, stay warm, stay rested and hydrated, all that wonderful stuff. I know that the Ace of Cups is a blessing and a good sign. I'm very grateful for it. At the same time, thank you for listening to the fourth episode in 11 episodes based on this one card. I can't say that it hasn't been challenging creatively, but it's good to be challenged now and then, isn't it? Let's see what happens next week. Thank you again, my friends. Sweet dreams. been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar.